Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians read through the Book of Concord and discuss what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we continue our study of Article 11 from the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, looking at the affirmative statements where we hear that clear biblical teaching in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith with regard to the doctrine of God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, and election. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the dual parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this article today is the Reverend Dr. Phil Boo. He is pastor of Christ Lutheran Church in Hebron, Connecticut. Pastor Boo, welcome to Concord Matters. Well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Yes, certainly great to have you on. Of course, we were classmates in seminary, so I always enjoy getting together with my uh, fellow alums and classmates. Good to be with you here. Now, in setting up our article today, as I said, we are covering the affirmative statements for Article 11, the epitome of the formula of Concord, looking at this issue of God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Those terms, as we'll talk about, could be a little interchangeable, even in our reader's edition of the Book of Concord, predestination is kind of in brackets there. But in setup of this article, how would you like to set this up for us and what we're going to be seeing in the affirmative statements here? Well, you know, I'm not going to obviously want to recap everything your previous guest said, but I think it is really notable that when we get into what we consider today a very hot topic, predestination, election, that there really wasn't any public disagreement among the Lutherans anyway of the 1570s when this was written. But this doesn't mean that there wasn't this concept out there in the ether. John Calvin and his disciples were out there teaching what we call a double predestination, the idea that God has not only chosen some to be saved from eternity, but then he's necessarily then chosen some for damnation and hell. And so this is still out there. The folks who are writing this article, they know about it. But the Lutherans, it really hasn't infected them as much as, say, the Calvinists. So when we talk about it, we often talk about it today in contrast to Calvinism and double predestination. And I think we simplify double predestination to this duality of well, God has chosen some people to be saved, and therefore he's chosen some people to go to hell. And that doctrine, if you asked a faithful Calvinist, would say, they would say, you know, that's a lot more complicated than that. There's a lot more nuance to it. And I think that's part of the problem, because whenever we have a clear teaching of Scripture, the only reason why we would need to finesse it and give it a bunch of nuance and make a bunch of backflips is so that we can try to fit what is otherwise clear into human reason, because this is one of those teachings of God that, 
well, frankly, doesn't make reasonable sense to our fallen human wills. There's something, there's a piece missing that God is keeping back for himself that he hasn't given to us. So when it comes to double predestination, though, I just think it's good to, you know, we could give Calvin some credit here, because if we are thinking about it in binary terms, then the logic plays out. It makes logical sense. And it appeals to our human desire to have all of the gaps erased. We don't want to have any tensions between what the Bible says in one place and what it says in another. If we can immediately you know, solve the apparent contradiction, there are no contradictions, but if we can't effectively solve that within our heads, then we get really upset about it. And that's basically what Calvin's doing. I mean, he's trying to speak where God has not spoken. And he's trying to see into the, as Luther would say, the absconding God, the God who is actively hiding from us. And that's, I think that's sort of the background to this, is that we have people trying to apply human wisdom to a biblical teaching. And the problem is the Bible doesn't talk about it in the way of people are being predestined to hell. So that is being added to the scriptures. That's being added to God's word. No, every time this is talked about in the scriptures, it is talked about in the context of comforting Christians. I mean, what comfort is there in being told that you have no access to heaven, no matter what you believe, say, or do, because God has already ordained or destined you to hell since the beginning of time? That's not in the nature of God, as the Bible reveals. And so the doctrine of predestination cannot be seen that way. The Bible doesn't speak of it that way. But that is the human nature kind of wanting to erase the gaps. Well, and I like how you raise there, too, that this is, as we've seen highlighted several times here in going through the formula of Concord, especially when we're talking about the Reformed doctrine, it seems like their mode of operation begins with trying to climb up into heaven, into the mind of God, and understand things that he hasn't given us to understand and hasn't revealed to us. And so I like how you highlighted that for us. And I also like how you highlighted that the confessors, they really did see this coming, that even though it wasn't an active controversy at the time, they did see it coming. And of course, I think I'm going to cover this in the next episode when we get to the negative statements a lot more deeper and so forth. But this did come up in the 1800s for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It almost tore the Synod apart right at the beginning of its foundation and one of the great works of C.F.W. Walther, my great hero that I bring up on the show at every opportunity I can, that came out of that was actually a work on predestination. It's a great work that's actually available through Concordia Publishing House now, and definitely commend that to you. But very foundational for them in dealing with that controversy and issue there in the 1800s was this work done by the Lutheran confessors in the Formula of Concord. And so what we're covering here today, very, very important as we continue to see that today. Now, one of the other reasons that I also asked you to be on this show is because I'm aware of your background a little bit. And as you said, this continues to be a, an issue for us today. So what are some things that you have seen in your background? And give us just a little recap of that as you've seen this affect us and that we need clear biblical confession on these things. Then, Well, as you said, you know, I came from a very mixed religious background, all Christian, but lots of different confessions. I grew up down south in the mountains of North Carolina, and when I was growing up, I was taken to a variety of different evangelical churches, Baptists, Methodists, non-denom, 
Church of Christ even. And it was there that I got this adage that a lot of Southerners say, and it is that it doesn't matter where you go to church, but only that you go. And I don't know if the same is true today, but at least that's how it was when I was a kid. And so the emphasis was on going to church, but there wasn't so much of an emphasis on what the confession of that church you went to was. Now, this isn't to say they were all in agreement, though. In fact, just the opposite. I ended up being brought up with a hodgepodge of Arminianism and Calvinism, depending on which church service I went to that week. And of course, predestination was a hot topic within all of those church bodies, primarily on how it relates to free will. And that seems to be where people trip up over this particular article of faith, and that is that what role do we get to play in our salvation? And that's what they argued over. So as I'm being brought up down south, I'm having a fairly confusing religious catechesis because there was never any point in my life, even as a young child, that I did not believe that Jesus was my Savior. But I was also then being actively taught that I wasn't saved until I said the sinner's prayer, gave my heart to him, and got baptized. Then I was taught that we're saved by faith, not by works, but we couldn't be saved unless we did baptism a certain way. While at the same time, I was taught that children couldn't give their hearts to Jesus and be baptized because they couldn't express their faith. They were automatically saved, but outside of faith because they couldn't express their faith. So this age of reason and everything, it was a complete confusion growing up. So faith was required for salvation, but it wasn't required for infants. And salvation wasn't a work except to say the sinner's prayer and give your heart to Jesus and be baptized in the right way. I bring all of this up really just to demonstrate the confusion that can take place when we fail to teach God's pure doctrine, that the doctrine as revealed, the pure spiritual milk, as Peter would say, without all of the logical backflipping needed to make it palatable to human reason. So the doctrine of election and predestination, however you want to phrase it, it suffers from this because, in my estimation, it is an incomplete revelation. There are parts that God just simply has not shared with us. Other things like the Trinity, the natures of Christ, a lot of this. God has not revealed every systematic detail of how this all fits together, and so we get in trouble when we try to fill in the blanks with our own guesses. So when I became a Lutheran, when the emphasis was on then the clear confessions based on the testimony of Scripture, and there was this effort to not add in our own human reason, then it was sort of a refreshing aside, even if it meant sometimes we didn't have all the answers. Well, and we're certainly glad that you became Lutheran, and I think when you think about those things— as you were saying, you know, that confusion in your upbringing, your teaching, your catechesis, that is what generally leads to Lutheranism, quite honestly. I mean, if you're seeing this, if you're thinking about this, there's an obvious contradiction that happens, a, a confusion in what you're being taught. And so that's where the clear biblical confession, once again, brings us as we continue to highlight with this article, it's the comfort of the gospel. And we actually have some real comfort there. And so, yeah, very, very important to, to have clear biblical confession on this. It actually matters and applies. And I think your personal story there really highlights that quite well for us. 
All right, let's go ahead and jump into then actually reading from the affirmative statements and getting that clear biblical confession of what we believe, teach, and confess. Although ironically, we don't actually see that in this article, that phrasing that we've seen all throughout the affirmative statements here in the epitome of the formula of Concord. But it is nonetheless what we believe, teach, and confess with regard to this doctrine. So this is Article 11 of the Epitome of the Formula of Concord, God's Eternal Foreknowledge, Predestination, and Election. Once again, we read on this show from Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord, available to you from Concordia Publishing House, the publishing arm of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is the affirmative statements of Article 11, picking up with Paragraph 2, Affirmative Statement Number 1. To begin with, the distinction between God's foreknowledge and his eternal predestination ought to be kept accurately. All right. I like right away the distinction between, maybe it's just because I love CFW Walther so much. I love it when we talk distinctions. (laughs) Go ahead. What's the distinction that we are making here? Right. Well, he who defines the terms wins the argument. And to best understand anything is to understand what you're talking about. What comes to my mind whenever terms are brought up and as it comes to confessions of faith is I think, are we saved by God's grace? Well, then what does grace mean? Does grace mean that God gave us the ability to do the things that earn our salvation or is grace grace as we would define it? So you have to understand the terms, and that's what's going on here too. God's foreknowledge and his eternal predestination or election. So the confessors get it right off the bat. They say, listen— these terms are being confused. It's crucial to know that what God's foreknowledge is, which they're going to define in the next paragraph, but everybody should believe and easily accept that God knows all things. So then how can his knowledge of the course of our lives affect, or do they affect, our activity? Is it fatalistic? Is it, well, anyway, they're going to get into it in this next, in this very next uh, part. Absolutely. And actually, it seems to me that paragraph three and four, affirmative statements two and three, both talk about foreknowledge. What is it in distinguishing these terms and laying out what we're talking about here? What is it we're talking about in terms of foreknowledge? That's covered in the next two affirmative statements. Then we move into predestination. And so I'm going to cover these two together and then just let you kind of talk about both of them together there. So this is paragraph three, affirmative statement two. God's foreknowledge is nothing else than this. God knows all things before they happen, as it is written in Daniel 2, verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Then going on with paragraph 4, affirmative statement 3. This foreknowledge extends over the godly and the wicked alike, but it is not the cause of evil or sin. In other words, it is not what causes people to do wrong which originally arises from the devil and mankind's wicked, perverse will. Nor does it cause their ruin, for which they themselves are responsible. But foreknowledge only regulates this and fixes a limit on their ruin, how far it should progress and how long it should last. All this happens to serve his elect for their salvation, even though such ruin is evil in itself. All right, thus far the epitome. So again, when the title of this article is God's foreknowledge and then predestination or election, those terms predestination and election go together, we're making a distinction there as you laid out for us. And so go ahead and distinguish then what is it we're talking about from these paragraphs, statements on God's foreknowledge. 
Well, I love how optimistic that paragraph three is, right? God's foreknowledge is nothing else than this. God knows all things before they happen. And that is it. God knows everything. It seems simple enough. But then again, does God knowing something mean that nothing else could have happened? God knows all things. He already knows the course of the entire life of the believer and the unbeliever. So it leads our human reason to start trying to figure this out. So true or false, right? God already knows that, say, John Doe is never going to come to Christ. His life will be filled with unforgiven sin, and he'll ultimately be damned. So is that true or false? And the answer is true. God knows all things. He simply wouldn't be God if he weren't omniscient. So then that follow-up, does God being able to see the course of that man's life from eternity mean that the man had no other choice but to live in sin? And as we're going to get, the answer is false. God's foreknowledge does not cause the man to commit sinful acts. He just knows what will happen. So what does it mean then that foreknowledge covers the godly and the wicked alike? Well, it means that he can see the course of all of our lives. He is God after all. But then they say it is not a cause of their ruined, right? The, the things that they do wrong, the things that we do wrong, are not because God makes us do them or because he sees in advance that we will do them and therefore that we had no other choice but to do them. But it, then it says, but he does regulate and fix the ruin, how long it should last, how bad it should be. We think of Satan being on a chain. God knows all things, but he's also all-powerful, omniscient, and omnipotent. So how does God use his omnipotence? Well, the Bible does reveal that, and it tells us that God wants to draw us closer to him, and he does this by limiting sin, right? So far from causing sin, God actually uses his power to keep sin in check. Now, if you were to go on with that line of thinking and say, well, then why does God allow sin to happen at all? Well, then we're into one of those eternal questions, right? Can God make a rock that's so large he himself can't lift it? And it becomes more of an exercise in trying to satisfy our human desire to know all the answers than it does to really genuinely seek after God's will for our life. Which actually kind of relates us back to the Garden of Eden, which is where you begin is where you're going to go, right? That's the original sin, too, is trying to be God ourselves and to wrap our mind around everything that he can, which is impossible. And yet this is exactly what we see also play out there in the garden, is that God, in his eternal foreknowledge, knew how it was going to go. And so from before the foundations of the world, he planned for our salvation, which I think just highlights what you just stated so beautifully for us, that that then relates to what we talk about in terms of predestination and election is that it's centered on our salvation. It's centered on our comfort once again. And I think that helps us understand the Garden of Eden, right? Absolutely. I mean, only the sinful human will would take the scenario of, okay, God knew. He knew how it was going to play out in the Garden of Eden. And so from the foundation of the world, he had Christ and this plan of salvation in mind to rescue us. Only the sinful human will would look at that and go, huh, well, if he knew it, then why didn't he just wipe us out? You know, it's like, why, why are you asking for God not to be God, to not be merciful, to not give you his grace and mercy, and instead questioning 
well, why then doesn't God just, you know, damn those two people to hell? And that's where we're getting with this double predestination. Okay, God elects some from eternity to go to heaven. Well, then it must be that he elects people to go to hell, even though the Bible doesn't say that. Instead of recognizing that a gap of knowledge exists, we want to turn God into the bad guy, which is probably why those thoughts are coming from our sinful human natures, from Satan whispering in our ears and those sorts of things. Yeah, well, and it gets us off the hook. <laughs> you know, if we can put God on it, make him the bad guy, as you said, it gets us off the hook, which gross oversimplification is the way I usually present it is, yeah, everyone's already condemned to hell. That's what sin did, right? <laughs> and so in this true doctrine on predestination, what we find is the comfort for us sinners, which then gets right into paragraph five, affirmative statement four. And we'll just cover this one with about five minutes or so before our break here. But this is who we're talking about when we're talking about predestination and election. So again, paragraph five, affirmative statement four, predestination or God's eternal election covers only the godly beloved children of God. It is a cause of their salvation, which he also provides. He plans what belongs to it as well. Our salvation is founded so firmly on it that the gates of hell cannot overcome it, citing John 10, verse 28, and Matthew 16, verse 18. All right, that's far the epitome. All right, Pastor Boo, go ahead and make this clear for us that is a comfort that it's only for the beloved children of God. Well, it sounds like gospel to me, right? So God's eternal election covers the godly, the beloved children of God. It's spoken here in the article, but also in all of Scripture, only in the context of believers and only in the context of comfort. So then predestination can only really be understood so far as we're able to understand it in the context of the gospel. But that's also like any other article of faith, right? The, 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 the core, our justification is the focus. It's the article on which our faith stands or falls. And so when we consider any other aspect of God's revelation, we look at it through the lens of that gospel message. The fact that God desires all to be saved, it just simply mitigates any fatalistic understanding of predestination. Basically, if God has already predetermined who will be saved and who will be damned, well then why bother preaching? Why bother evangelizing? Why bother baptizing? Why forgive sins? Why send Christ? So that message of Christ tells us that God doesn't desire anyone to go to hell. For instance, hell wasn't even created for people. But instead, he wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth. So predestination is really rightly a part of the gospel message. And since it is, we cannot apply it to those who die in unbelief. So whenever you're having a conversation about those who die in their sins, then you cannot talk about predestination because that's not what the Bible does. That's not God's will for their lives. He predestines no one to hell. So it being the cause, right? God forms us to be his children from the foundation of the world. He's predestined us, elected us then to have faith in Christ. And of course, his electing work, his salvific work involves a lot more things than him just electing us. That's just part of this whole wonderful, beautiful plan of the gospel. And the gospel's power then doesn't rely on our actions. So we can't even say that, well, 
he's choosing us in view of our faith, or he's choosing us because he knows that we'll give our hearts to Jesus. No, the gospel power relies all on God's actions, and that makes it good news. Well, and even saying, as you highlighted there, you know, why bother baptizing? Why bother evangelism? And we see that present in especially American, what I broadly call American evangelicalism, this reform thinking, double predestination dominates their theology, and yet they are the most zealous in terms of evangelism and so forth. As you kind of set up with your own personal background and so forth, that seems like another interesting contradiction to me. Right. That you say, well, there's this double predestination, some are going to hell. Well, then why bother being so concerned about evangelism, right? Do you want to talk a little more about that before our break here? Well, they just, they gave us a term for that, didn't they? Felicitous inconsistency. I think you had the same class as I did. And that is that it's a happy inconsistency. I mean, we're glad they're out there talking about Jesus and telling people that they should believe in Christ and calling them to repent of their sins. But if they took their own theology to its most serious implications, then yeah, they would just be wasting their time. And growing up, I've asked this question and some of the responses were, well, you know, we do it because it gives us evidence that we're the ones that are called. So the desire to do it or the activity of doing it is how we can get this blessed assurance that we are among the elect. See, if we are worried, if we're worried about whether or not God has predestined us to heaven or predestined us to hell, as it would be with double predestination, then we never really know for sure that we're saved. And so we're always seeking that blessed assurance that we're in the kingdom. So that's the reason why. That's the reason they do all these things, so that at some point they can feel that there's enough empirical piety and evidence to suggest or to say that, yes, they are among the elect. And that's, and that's unfortunate because God's word is clear enough. Yeah, which definitely leads us again to potentially very disturbing conclusions. I, I've known a lot of people that really suffer under this teaching of double predestination that have even committed suicide just simply because they take it to its fullest conclusion there. And that's really quite dangerous and disturbing. And I like how you highlighted earlier, especially addressing this paragraph, this article is really understood in the context of the gospel. And we're going to take a break here, but on the other side of the break, we're going to pick up with paragraph six, which is going to direct us quite beautifully to exactly where we understand that in the context of the gospel. So please join us right after this. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFU. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with Pastor Phil Boo about Article 11 from the epitome of the formula of Concord, talking about God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, election, and as was highlighted for us very well by Pastor Phil Boo right before the break, 
This article is best understood in the context of the gospel. We should look for revelation, as we've highlighted several times and already on this episode, not by climbing up into the mind of God, but by finding him in his word where he reveals himself to us. And so I think that picks up really well here with paragraph six, affirmative statement five, and then we'll take the next couple paragraphs together after this, but just very briefly to highlight this point. This again is article 11, paragraph six. It is not to be investigated in God's secret counsel. It is to be sought in God's word where it is revealed. All right, once again, pretty simple, straightforward, but go ahead and highlight why this is a really important affirmative statement here for us. Oh my goodness, I don't know why they didn't put this at the very beginning. And and we should also imprint it upon our hearts and minds and Bibles and doorposts because anything when it comes to understanding God's will for your life needs to be investigated, not in God's secret counsel, but in God's word where it is revealed. So the whole concept of investigating God's secret counsel is nothing more than trying to know that which God has not told us. And since what God wants to remain secret stays secret, then it means that we're just taking guesses or using logic, which of course is good, but using logic that is trying to uh, satisfy the appetite of fallen human reason gets us into trouble. And so it's whenever we say things like, well, this is what God probably meant, or he could have meant, or Lord forbid, should have meant, that's the sort of stuff that gets us in trouble. And so for those who are looking for every loose end to be tied off about this article, well, this is going to let you know right now that you're going to be disappointed. Lutheran scholars live comfortably in the paradoxes, or at least strive to. There are simply parts of this article of faith that we're never going to be able to reckon with human reason. Which then I think also ties in quite well then into paragraph 7, and I'm also going to include 8. This is what God's Word reveals to us in telling us is our comfort. God's Word leads us to Christ, who is the book of life, in whom all are written and elected, who are to be saved in eternity. For it is written in Ephesians 1 verse 4, even as he chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. And then continue on with paragraph 8, affirmative statement 7. Christ calls all sinners to himself and promises them rest. He is eager, seriously wills that all people should come to him and allow themselves to be helped. He offers them himself and his word and wants them to hear it and to not plug their ears or neglect and despise the word. Furthermore, he promises the power and working of the Holy Spirit and divine assistance for perseverance and eternal salvation, so that we may remain steadfast in the faith and gain eternal salvation. All right, a lot of things going on there as we covered those two paragraphs, and even highlighting some of that reform thinking, the perseverance of the saints, very reform-loaded language, which perhaps maybe we even get a little deeper into on the next episode when we cover the negative statements. But as we have our clear confession of what the Bible teaches us, once again, direct us to the gospel and how we understand this in the lens of the gospel in terms of the book of life and our confession here. Well, that's right. So the book of life, if we stick to the scriptures, then this next statement is going to let us know that the scriptures are going to lead us to Jesus. And so not so incidentally, this doctrine of election confirms a major tenet of the gospel, and that is that people are saved 
not by their works, not by their decisions, or any other effort on their part, but only by the will and election of God, only because of the work of God through Christ. So works righteousness and synergism, decision theology, those things are excluded when we hear about God's predestination of the elect. Yes, it's true that in order to try to fit the theology together, people will say, well, he chose us in view of knowing that we would come to faith or chose us in view of what we would do. Well, that's not him choosing. That's his foreknowledge. And so that's why the uh, confessors rightfully made that distinction at the very beginning. But even this idea of he chose us. So the question's asked and then answered then, does he choose believers based on their decisions or activity? And the answer is simply no. But we struggle then with this idea of then why are some saved and others aren't, right? That idea of, well, he must be choosing us in view of us living this really great life or us making a decision for Christ. And all that's doing is the human will trying to take some credit for their own salvation. Why some are saved and others aren't is unanswerable, this side of Christ's return. And of course, when he does, we won't be that concerned with it. It's the heart of this problem when we try to understand predestination, but don't want to accept God's clear teaching about it. It should be, it should be enough that God has chosen us in Christ. But people just want to know the answer to that great question. You know, why are some not saved then? So Robert Cole, Robert Kolb calls this question the cross of the theologians. And I like what he writes. He says, it crucifies all pretensions of those who would want to be able to supply all the answers about God to those who ask. It reminds theologians that their powers have limits and their pride died right at this most critical question. I think as pastors, that's what we want. You come to us with a question, we want you to leave not only having the right answer, but feeling satisfied that we were able to quench all of your doubts. And that's just not how the Christian faith works. Instead, we should be content that God wants everything about him to be known through what he has revealed to us through Jesus. Christ calls all sinners to himself. He wants all people to come to him. He offers his word. It's through his word then that he gives faith to us. And so the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, as they say, that is the focus that God wants us to see him through Jesus. Anything else is the absconding God, the hiding God, the trying to peek behind the curtain, so to speak. And that's when we get in trouble. So is it fair to say then that basically the thing that we should focus our attention on as you just said, is Christ himself. That's how God wants us to see him, is through Christ. And so the answer to the question of why some not others really is, that question doesn't matter. Just believe what Christ says, which is, come to me, you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the comfort of the gospel. He's calling all sinners to himself. That's God's will. So is it, I guess, basically what I'm doing is I'm dismissing that cross of the theologian, that difficult question by saying, that question doesn't even matter. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, absolutely. When everybody, when anybody comes to us with a theological question, we've been well trained to ask, why do you want to know? And this is another one of those opportunities. Pastor, has God already determined who's going to heaven? Well, the answer is, why do you want to know? Because if you want to know because you want to be secure in your salvation so that you can live however you please— 
then we have a decision to make about how to apply law and gospel in that situation. If you want to know because you're in terror of your faith and you think that God has somehow decided that there's nothing you can do, you're going to hell, then there's a way that we're going to approach that with the proper distinction between law and gospel. And so whenever the question is asked that requires an answer that can only be answered by God, the proper theologian is then checked. He's put into check is what Professor Kolb is saying, and he has to recognize that he just doesn't have all the answers. And so if you're asking your pastor a question and he says that we don't know, it's not that someone else does and he's just a bad pastor or a bad theologian. It's that we don't know because God hasn't told us, and he respects you enough not to try to make something up. I like the highlighting of another proper distinction that we Lutherans love to make because it is a biblical distinction of the proper distinction of law and gospel so that we can rightly lead to repentance or lead to comfort in the gospel as is our calling to do in the proclamation of God's word and is exactly where the epitome goes next here in paragraph nine, affirmative statement eight. We should not reach conclusions about our election to eternal life based on reason or God's law. That would lead us either into a reckless, loose, epicurean life or into despair. It would stir up destructive thoughts in people's hearts, for they cannot, as long as they follow their reason, successfully keep themselves from thinking. If God has elected me to salvation, I cannot be condemned no matter what I do. And again, if I'm not elected to eternal life, it doesn't matter what good I do. It is all in vain anyway. Thus far the epitome. Now, you just highlighted a couple of great examples for us. Any other thoughts on this paragraph? Well, absolutely. This also rears its ugly head in the cousin of once saved, always saved. The idea is that once someone is, comes to faith, then there's nothing they can do. And then if they fall into some grievous sin, then they must have not been saved in the first place. And all of those things are tactics of the devil to try to insert doubt into our hearts about God's word when it says that Christ desires that all be saved and that we are called according to his good and gracious will. So, you know, we've already talked about how predestination has to follow the same model of the scriptures that is applying it only according to the gospel. But right, this is they're giving us some examples here. Um, Epicurean life. I, I had to look that up again because, you know, this is not a philosophy that we think about a lot. And it's just a form of hedonism, right? So it would either lead us into a life of I can do whatever I want or a life of eternal despair, and neither of which is the life that God wants you to live. Well, and I think ties into, again, contemporary applications that we still see today. And, and I like your question that we are well taught to ask as pastors is, why do you ask? Because we still see our people wrestle with this, right? And I even still see people with this thinking in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod is I've been baptized, you know, maybe even went through confirmation and I can go off and live however I want. And I should still get a Christian funeral when I pass away. And I'm surely going to heaven. That seems to me whenever I encounter that to be a teaching that we do not hold in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is it doesn't matter however you live. But we also want to avoid on the other side then that despair, right? That we not just be preaching, well, you have no idea, you know, and because right. again, that can lead to all sorts of, well, just despair. You know, as, as I said, you know, I've even encountered folks that have committed suicide just under that despair of, well, God doesn't love me and I have no comfort and no assurance. 
and definitely want to avoid those two extremes as well. And so again, these right distinctions, very important for that. Right. Our assurance comes from God's clear word, not from the way we feel or our blessings in life or any of these other sort of external things. Right. Absolutely. Which then I think also ties in quite well to, again, where we learn that in God's word, it focuses us on the gospel and ties in really well with paragraph 10 and 11. I'm going to read these together as really quite beautiful comforts that we have in that gospel word revealed to us. So this is affirmative statement nine and then also 10, picking up with paragraph 10. The true judgment about predestination must be learned alone from the holy gospel about Christ in which it is clearly testified. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all, citing Romans 11.32, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, citing 2 Peter 3, verse 9, and believe in the Lord Christ. See also Ezekiel 18.23, 33, verse 11, 18, and 1 John 2, verse 2. And then continuing on paragraph 11, affirmative statement 10. Now, let whoever is concerned about God's revealed will act on the order that St. Paul has described in the epistle to the Romans. Paul first directs people to repentance, Romans 1 and 2, to knowledge of sins, Romans 3, verses 1 through 20, to faith in Christ, Romans 3, verses 21 through chapter 5, verse 21, to divine obedience, Romans 6 through 8. Then he speaks of the mystery of God's eternal election, Romans 9 through 11. This doctrine is useful and consolatory to the person who proceeds in this way. Thus far, the epitome. All right, Pastor Boo, go ahead and give us this gospel comfort that's revealed to us and highlight it really well from Romans there, too. Well, see, who proceeds in this way? I think that's wonderful because what way are they talking about? And they are talking about understanding this particular article of faith according to the broader revelation of God about how he has saved us through Christ. So they send us to Romans, the larger context of us understanding our sins and need for a Savior, all the way through Christ redeeming us. Understanding things in context is a hallmark, at least from my personal experience, of the Lutheran Church, as opposed to some of the church bodies that I grew up in where everything was taken out of context, right? The versification of the Bible being, oh, such, it could be it could be good for finding things, and it also can be misused, and, and much of what I grew up with was a misuse of the King James Version and things being taken out of context. So basically they're saying nothing more than look at it in the greater context. Paul gives God's providence, his will to do good for his creatures as the background for understanding predestination. We see this in chapter 8, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So all of these things are what God is doing for you, and that's amazing, wonderful comfort. So in chapter 9, Paul then starts making this argument from God is sovereign. And it's absolutely, chapter 9 is about the sovereignty of God. But there's a lot more to learn there than just God's going to decide who he's going to have mercy on and who he won't have mercy on, right? He uses the examples of Jacob and Esau and Moses and Pharaoh. But the Jewish readers, 
they wouldn't have had any problem with the concept or the language of being chosen, right? That makes sense to them. So this would have been a little bit new to the Greek Christians. So why mention it? Well, he doesn't mention it. Paul doesn't mention it so that they're now worried about which category they're in, or that he doesn't mention it so that they'd be fearful or unassured about their faith. So he must be mentioning it for the opposite, right? To make them long for and understand that God is on their side, to give them comfort that their salvation is secure because, like the Jews, God chose them as his own. We get that from Peter, too. You know, he connects the Christians to the chosen people language, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. All of this is applied to all the children of God. And this is the language of being in favor with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy. So if we try to get assurance for our salvation in any other way, external blessings, how much money I have, what my car looks like, whether I feel like God's with me or not, or all the good works that I do, those things aren't reliable. The only thing reliable is God. Well, and I really like how you highlighted there this being chosen, this chosen language to a Hebrew, to a Jew, wouldn't have been as much of a problem as we tend to have today. I know I was pretty dismissive earlier of that question, why some not others, and maybe I'm unfair in being dismissive of that entirely. But I tend to come back to this idea again of what is it we mean when we talk about being chosen? And I'm not dismissing when I say I dismiss that question to some extent as being the unimportant question, Mm -hmm. but that we try to have a biblical understanding of what it is to be chosen, which I think then goes really nicely into paragraph 12, set up really well by how you discuss how St. Paul and also Peter are talking about it, and thus how scripture is talking about it. But as we go into Affirmative Statement 11, paragraph 12, it gives us more information on this and how we should understand it, centered on the gospel again. So continuing with our reading here, however, many are called, but few are chosen. And that's quoted from Matthew 22, verse 14. This does not mean that God is unwilling to save everybody, but the reason some are not saved is as follows. They do not listen to God's word at all, but willfully despise it, plug their ears and harden their hearts. In this way, they block the ordinary way, citing Luke 16, 29 through 31, for the Holy Spirit, so he cannot perform his work in them. Or when they have learned God's word, they make light of it again and ignore it. But their wickedness is responsible for this, that they perish, not God or his election. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, Luke 11, 49 through 52, and Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 26. Thus far, once again, our epitome This is foundational for us in understanding, as you highlighted already, Romans 9, right? Right. Well, it's part of human nature to want to be masters of our own destinies. And so when Jesus says things like, many are called, but few are chosen, the first thing that the human nature wants to do is, well, what do I need to do to be chosen? But the doctrine of election says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. So the choosing is not based on our activity. But what about those then who are not part of the elect, those who die outside of faith? Is that because God wanted them to die? And again, the whole context of Scripture and Romans is that no. Yes, all people are sinful, but at the same time, God desires all people to be saved. And so salvation ends up being God's work, but our sins 
the responsibility for our damnation is 100% our responsibility. If you want responsibility in something, then you get it. And that is your sinful nature, your rebellion against God, and the natural desire that you have to resist him. But the good news is that salvation is 100% God's work. And so you don't have to worry about, did you say the right sinner's prayer? Was your baptism perfect enough? Did you get fully immersed all three times in all four corners? Did you say the right prayers and do the right things? No, it is the work of God 100% that you're saved. But the unfortunate part is that those who are outside of salvation, it's not because God hasn't done everything to draw you, everything but force you to believe. And the scriptures don't speak of it that way. God has, in his own infinite wisdom, decided not to force people to come to faith. Which then directs us to where we should concern ourselves. And I hate to kind of rush us along here, but I do want to get these last three paragraphs in with just about five minutes or so to the end of our show. But I think this really draws together everything discussed here. And so I'm going to, it'll be a little bit at length that I read here, but this covers paragraphs 13, 14, and 15 and closes out the affirmative statements, which are 12, 13, and 14. A Christian should concern himself in meditation with the article about God's eternal election only as far as it has been revealed in God's word. His word presents Christ to us as the book of life, which he opens and reveals to us by the preaching of the gospel, as it is written in Romans 8 verse 30, and those whom he predestined he also called. In him we are to seek the eternal election of the Father, who has determined in his eternal divine counsel, citing Ephesians 1, 11 through 12, that he would save no one except those who know his son Christ and truly believe in him. Other thoughts are to be entirely banished from the minds of the godly, for they do not come from God, but from the suggestion of the evil foe. With such thoughts, he attempts to weaken or entirely remove us from the glorious comfort we have in this helpful doctrine. In other words, we know assuredly that out of pure grace, without any merit of our own, we have been elected in Christ to eternal life. No one can pluck us out of his hand, citing John 10, verse 29. He has not only promised this gracious election with mere words, but has also certified it with an oath and sealed it with the holy sacraments. We can, ought to, call these to mind in our own most severe temptations and take comfort in them. And with them, we can quench the fiery darts of the devil, citing Ephesians 6, verse 16. Besides, we should act with the greatest diligence to live according to God's will. As St. Peter encourages in 2 Peter 1, verse 10, make your calling and election sure. We should especially cling to, not recede a hair's width from, the revealed word, which cannot and will not fail us. By this brief explanation of God's eternal election, glory is entirely and fully given to God, out of pure mercy alone, without any of our merit. He saves us according to the purpose of his will. No reason is given to anyone for despair or a vulgar wild life. No opportunity is afforded either for those more severe agitations of mind and faint-heartedness or for Epicureanism. Thus far, the epitome on the affirmative statements beautifully wrapped up here. I, this is one of my favorite sections of the whole formula of Concord and wrapping up, you know, just a clear biblical confession of this. But go ahead and give us your parting thoughts here, your gospel-centered comfort on this. Yeah, it's definitely hard to add anything to what the confessors have written here. Just the reality that we are chosen in Christ, that God does his electing work through Jesus. And if we know anything about Jesus, 
then you'll know that God means this to be a word of comfort for us. When election predestination is spoken of, it's spoken for our comfort. It's only the devil who wants to turn God's words of comfort to a curse that makes us worry about our salvation. So especially if you worry about your salvation, then you're worrying about what most people don't even care one way or the other about on this earth who are walking around dead without Christ. So be comforted, dear Christian, that Christ is in you and with you, and his work is what saves you. And God has elected you, chosen you from the foundation of the world to be with him, and that is very good news. And it's this comfort, knowing that God himself has chosen us in Christ, that then frees us up to do the other side of our faith. You know, the first is believe in God, and the other side is to love our neighbor and serve our neighbor. And so when St. Peter says in his epistle, make your calling and election sure, and the, the concordists here note that don't recede even a hair's width from the revealed word, the idea here is that now you don't have to worry about your salvation. Instead, you're freed up to serve your neighbor, to proclaim to them the light of God's love, and to hopefully bring them alongside of you so that then it expands throughout the world. And that's how God's designed his church, and that's why this is such a great word of comfort for us. Indeed, a great word of comfort and leads us to understand our Christian calling then, making sense, getting rid of those contradictions, as you highlighted for us, that are present in other traditions. We know why we baptize. We know why we evangelize. That's because this gospel comfort is for all people. That's what God has revealed for us to know through Christ. Thank you very much, Pastor Phil Boo, for joining us for Concord Matters today and giving us that good, faithful, clear confession on the clear biblical teaching on God's eternal foreknowledge, predestination, election, as we covered the affirmative statements on this, the epitome of the formula of Concord, Article 11. Thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Thank you.